Morning, everybody. I'm, I'm Pastor Stefan. I'm one of the people that can pray. <laughs> Famous for that. Uh, welcome, welcome. So glad that you're here. Those of you joining us online, so glad that you're uh, with us. Would you please turn with me in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation 21, beginning at verse 10. So we're coming uh, to the, near to the end of our Revelation sermon series. Um, we've talked a number of times about how this is a book. It's actually a letter. And this letter is a very specific letter that was written by the Apostle John about a vision that he had, about a revelation that he had, which was for these seven groups of churches. And these seven groups of churches were really, really struggling with their faith, really struggling with their lives. And um, the, the point of the letter was to encourage these groups, these churches. Um, Christians were in a, in a great minority at this time in history, and they were under a lot of intense persecution. And so this is a letter um, given to the Apostle John from Jesus himself encouraging these seven churches. Um, so let's read our text and try to imagine what in particular these first century churches might have found so encouraging. So Revelation 21, we're going to read verse 10, and then we're going to jump to verse 22. Listen to God's word. And he, that's one of the angels, and he carried me away in the spirit to a, great mount, to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the, lamp, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. So the Bible is composed of 66 different books written by dozens and dozens of different authors over thousands and thousands of years. So think about that for a second. 66 books, dozens and dozens of authors over thousands of years. Now, given those realities... Uh, what's really remarkable about the Bible is just how unified it is in its message. The Bible is incredibly unified in its message. Yes, there are significant changes, significant developments um, when it comes to certain things and ideas and social practices throughout, but the unifying story and the themes of this unifying story are incredibly consistent considering that we're talking about a Bible with 66 books 
dozens and dozens of authors written over thousands and thousands of years. This morning, we're going to talk about... Siri found something on the web for me. (laughs) I got a new watch. Sorry. I hope that doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) She thinks I'm asking her questions. Okay. You know what? We're going to take this off is what we're going to (laughs) do. There we go. I'll just have to guess what my heart rate was during my sermon. (laughs) As I was saying... This morning we're talking about one of those themes, one of those unifying themes that we find throughout Scripture. Um, And this theme can be found on the first page of the Bible and on the last page of the Bible. And it is referred to constantly, repeatedly, throughout the entire story of Scripture. And that theme is the temple. I couldn't pass up this opportunity to talk about the temple, to talk about this really fascinating little verse in chapter 21, verse 22. So John is having this vision, right? He's having this vision, this revelation, and in this revelation, way at the end of it, the holy city of Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. Uh, The whole story is reaching its climax, and as he's noticing these things about the holy city of Jerusalem, one of the first things that he notices is that there is no temple. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What on earth does that mean? Uh, Let's start with this. What is a temple? A temple or temple-like places are everywhere across all times, all people, all cultures, Everybody's got temples, and I mean literally everybody's got temples. Temples are sacred places where people gather to experience the divine. Sacred places where people gather to experience the divine. This building that we are in right now, to some extent, is a temple. A mosque is a temple. A synagogue is a temple. However, temples are more than just religious places, more than just religious real estate. Things need not be explicitly religious in order for them to be a temple. For example, um, for some people, Mount Fuji in Japan is a temple, and it's treated as though it's sacred. Some people call the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. the temple of democracy, and they treat it as such. I have a friend who, uh, in, in grad school, in seminary, wrote a paper about the Boston Red Sox as a religion and Fenway Park as its temple. Some of you might know who this person is. For some people, uh, fanatical Red Sox fans, Fenway Park is like a, is like a temple to them. It's a place where they they gather with other like-minded people and they reach out for something that they believe is greater than than themselves and beyond themselves and they treat it with a certain sacredness, with a certain holiness. So a temple is where people gather and collectively reach out for something that's beyond themselves, some place where they place their highest hopes and their greatest and deepest longings. When you think about 
the temple in the Bible, maybe the first thing that you think about is Solomon's temple in, um, in, the, in the middle of Jerusalem, which was built about a thousand years before Christ, 990 some years before Christ. So Solomon's temple was this big, uh, beautiful, sacred place, which was kind of planned by David and built by his son Solomon. Um, and the purpose of this was that the people of God and their holy city would have this central, majestic, permanent place where God could reside among his people. But actually, Solomon's temple is not the beginning of the story of the temple for God and his people. The first temple in the Bible was the Garden of Eden. In Genesis, it says that the Lord God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. You know what that is? That's a temple worship service. The Lord God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. They lived together. They were with each other. They shared things with one another. They shared presents. They had it all. It was the ultimate temple. It was everything that they could have hoped for. And there was no barrier between Adam and Eve and the God who created them and loved them. It was a flawless temple. But then sin came into the world. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, right? And then what happened? They were kicked out of the temple. They were kicked out of the garden. And from that point on, from when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the temple, humanity, out of the garden, humanity has been looking for a way to get back into the temple, to feel like they're actually in the temple, to feel like they're actually truly in the presence of God. So a few generations later, the Israelites, uh, leaving Egypt are trying to find their identity as God's people, having, having lived as slaves for 400 and some years. And kind of as they were going, figuring out who they were, they made this makeshift temple, and they called it the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was this kind of traveling version of the Garden of Eden. And they just kind of pieced it together with some of the stuff that they had. They had some, a little bit of gold, they had some nice stuff, and they kind of pieced things. Otherwise, it was just this dusty old tent it was mobile. They carried it around wherever they went. It was the low-budget reminder of God's presence with his people. But it's still just a tent. Generations later, they settled down in the promised land like God promised that they would, and they made plans for a more permanent temple, a temple, they thought, that would really set them apart, a temple that would really set God apart. And so they made this uh, plan for a great temple that would absolutely fulfill all of their desires for God's presence with them. So Solomon, now we're at the temple of Solomon. Solomon completed the, the great temple in Jerusalem according to some estimates. We're talking 500 billion to a trillion dollars. It's a staggering amount of money. So a trillion dollars worth of public funds filtered into this worship place. And it took um, almost a generation to build the whole thing. And as they were commissioning the temple, something really strange happened. At the dedication of the temple, it's the grand opening, okay? King Solomon stands up to give the final words of dedication for this temple. And instead of saying 
all of the politically correct things that he was supposed to say in that moment? What he said was this, essentially. He said, you know what? This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Why are we even doing this? Why do we think we can even do this? Solomon suddenly sounds like a, a frustrated skeptic in the middle of a worship service. He says, are we, is this for real? This, is, this whole thing is crazy. All of the heavens cannot contain God, how much less this little shack that we've built for him. What are we thinking, people? All of the heavens cannot contain God, how much less this silly little temple that I built. And all of the taxpayers who were standing there that day were saying, what did he just say? A trillion dollar temple? And he's like, it's foolishness to think that God will actually reside in this little shack. Now, fast forward a few generations and Jesus shows up. Jesus uh, had a very strange relationship with the temple. If you've read the Gospels, maybe you've noticed this. Jesus gets really weird around the temple. Have you seen this? Jesus gets really, really weird around the temple. Sometimes it seems like he loves it because like, he goes out of his way to be there. He goes there to pray. He goes there to teach. He goes there to give his offerings even as a little boy. He goes there to be with God's people and it's like this beautiful haven for him sometimes. And then other times, he's angry when he sees the temple. And he gets really upset by the temple. You know the story of when Jesus is throwing over the tables and he's shouting at people and he's throwing things around the room? That was the temple. He was doing that in the temple, like this super holy place. Now, fast forward to the book of Revelation. John is receiving this vision of the new Jerusalem, and we come to verse 22, and he looks into the city of Jerusalem, and one of the first things he sees is that there is no temple, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. So Jesus himself is the temple. No wonder Jesus had a weird relationship with the temple, right? He himself was the temple. So there's the story. How do, we, how do we make sense of this? What does this mean for us? Why is there no temple in the new Jerusalem? Did you notice, all throughout this story, all throughout biblical history, people always found the temple unsatisfying? Everybody. With maybe with the exception of the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the world, every single iteration of the temple, every generation's experience of the temple was disappointing. The expectations never matched reality. It was too dusty. It was too small. There was never enough gold. The priests were always flawed. The experience was flat. The temple was always unsatisfying, even to Solomon, even 
To Jesus, the temple was always unsatisfying. Why is that? There's a lesson about faith here, Alger Park Church. In the book of Revelation, we find out that it's because the temple has always been a crutch. The temple is a crutch. Have you ever heard somebody say that religion is a crutch? Remember when I was a little kid um, growing up in Iowa, uh, and everyone was very scandalized by the fact that in our neighboring state of Minnesota, they had just elected a governor named Jesse Ventura. Remember this? <laughs> okay. He was a pro wrestler for you young kids. I know, it's crazy, right? They elected Jesse Ventura to be governor. And Jesse Ventura had very publicly announced at one point that, quote, organized religion is a crutch for weak-minded people. Well, the good folks in Sioux County, Iowa, did not appreciate that so very much. And we told ourselves that we would never elect a governor who would say such a thing, unlike those you-know-whos in Minnesota. But as I think back on this quote, this Jesse Ventura quote, I can't help but realize that to some degree, he is absolutely right. He's absolutely right. In order to have any kind of meaningful relationship with Jesus, you have to come to embrace your own weakness. You have to. There's literally no way around it. In order to have a meaningful relationship, a meaningful interaction with Jesus, you have to embrace your own weakness. You will never hear a word that Jesus ever says unless you embrace your own weakness. Maybe Jesse Ventura was the strongest person who ever lived, and maybe he never needed any help from anybody a day in his entire life. Maybe, but I know that I do. I do. I need help. And God has extended to me that help in many forms. And I'm grateful for that. So in Revelation chapter 21... John paints this picture of the new Jerusalem where there is no sun, there is no moon, there are no locked gates, there is nothing impure, there is no sea, and there is no temple. Because this is a place where Christ is all in all, at all times, in all places, and no one ever has to be reminded of this. There's no need for a crutch. But we're not there yet, are we? We still need our crutches. We live in a world at war. Our lives are very chaotic. Things feel very unstable here. We so easily lose our bearings 
Justice does not flow like a mighty water, nor righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We so easily lose track of where we are in God's redemptive plans, in the story of God in the universe. And because of this, to keep us from getting lost in our own despair, God gives us crutches. This worship space is a crutch. And aren't you glad for it this morning? This faith community is a crutch. And we wouldn't trade these people for anything. The remembering of our baptisms every single week, over and over and over, that's a crutch. And we wouldn't do without it. The music that we sing every Sunday morning is a crutch. The Eucharist that awaits us in a matter of minutes is a crutch. We're talking about priceless crutches here, about infinitely, eternally valuable crutches. If we're going to be people of faith, if we're going to be people of hope, If we're going to be people of Jesus, then we're going to need all the help we can get. And so God, in his infinite grace, loads us up with crutches. And as he gives us these crutches, he tells us to imagine into them. To imagine into them. And I know this is just grape juice and gluten-free bread, Jesus says. I know that. But imagine into it. Do you know what it represents? Do you know the greater reality behind it? This water came from that sink back in the kitchen. I know, a little gross. Imagine into that water. Do you know what that represents? Do you know the river of life, the fountain from which it comes? Can you imagine into that greater reality? We live in a world of crutches, but our crutches point us to something that is beautiful and eternal and priceless and beyond us. Can you imagine into your crutches? If we're going to be people of faith, we need to be able to do that. We love our temples, and we should. But in Revelation 21, God tells us, psst, the whole thing is the temple. The whole thing is the temple. I am the temple. And try as you may, you can't escape me. You can walk through all the exit doors you want and you won't get away. The whole thing is the temple. Can we imagine into that? In heaven, no one is asking, what time does the worship service start? Right? Because the answer is like, uh, never and always. Can we imagine into that reality? A temple is a place where people gather 
to collectively reach out for something that is beyond themselves, that is greater than themselves, where they can imagine themselves into realities that they can't always perceive, where they grab onto crutches that help lift them up off of the ground into a place that is sacred and beautiful and meaningful. Thank God for our crutches. And thank God for our temples. And may we be people who use them regularly to lift ourselves into a place where one day we will no longer even need them anymore. This is our future. Pray with me. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've invited us to a place where you are all in all. And even though on a daily basis that's a really difficult reality for us to perceive, you are continuing to come and you will continue to come. We thank you for this beautiful vision of the future where there is no chaos of the sea, there are no locked doors, and there is no singular place where we will find your presence. Remind us, through this beautiful crutch we're about to partake in, that you are in us and through us and for us. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.